Let me start in that in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to be opening your Bibles there. I would guess many here, like me, love and appreciate Brother Joseph Casimir. I've heard Joseph say before, I love Wednesday night Christians. I know what he means by that. And I know that you know what he means by that. We've had visitors here most of this, uh, most of this week. And, but on Wednesday night, you know, you condition yourself, you prepare yourself. It's pretty, it's pretty much going to be home folk. Well, that's the best folk. It's what a wonderful blessing it has been for me and Carla to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you. Thank you for welcoming us like you did. You haven't just taken care of us. What you've done is you opened your heart to us. And you let us in and you, you let us be a part of you for this week. And we have, we've been so blessed because of that. Thank you for, as, as Bob's already mentioned, for the effort you've made to be here this week. You've dealt with children. You've dealt with, with long work days. You've dealt with traffic. You've dealt, you've dealt with our lot in life. And yet you've made it such a priority to be here. And what an encouraging thing that is. Thank you for the work that you've done. We had visitors here for most of the services. And that's not because they're driving down the road and see a bunch of cars in the parking lot and swerve in to see what's happening. No, they were here because you let them know what was going on. You made an effort in some form or fashion to let them be aware. And, and, and we've been blessed because of that. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful experience for me and Carla and Lord willing, we'll, we'll get to renew these new friendships that we've made. Now, we, now you're a part of that, and hopefully we'll get to see you again wherever it might, might be. Before we go into our study, let's have a word of prayer. God and Father, we're so thankful to you for this wonderful week that you've given us, every opportunity that, that it's been presented. We're thankful for all the times we were able to come together and study. Thank you for that. Things are so well in our life and so well with our health that we could, that we could do this each night. I pray, Father, that, that we'll all have continue, continual growth and continual service as we, as, as we work within your kingdom. We're especially mindful, Father, for the, for the church here. Please be with uh, the elders as they shepherd. Be with the various deacons and all the, in, in all the works and services that they, that they are responsible for. Be with every teacher that's here. Be with every saint that is here. Help them not to grow weary as they maintain their works. We're so thankful, Father, for, for the physical birth of, the, of, of Matthew and Rachel's son. Pray you can be with, be with him as he grows. We're thankful, Father, for the spiritual birth that we got to witness last night. We pray you be with Ryan, that every day, every year, he grows stronger and serves you the rest of his life. We realize, Father, a lot of announcements were made concerning sick and surgeries, and what we, what we ask that, that you now do is help us to control our thoughts, help us to control our minds, help us to put all that aside for this little while and help us to, to worship you with a reverent mind. We ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. You're familiar with the phrase, I, I am not in any form or fashion an environmentalist, but I understand the concept of carbon footprint. I know what that means and when I read about it, I know, what, I know what's going on. I am in no way or, or fashion a, a tech guy. I don't know a whole lot about computers, nor do I want to learn just a whole lot about them. But I understand what, uh, what, what a social media footprint is. I understand. I understand those things. There's a lot of those, you know, that, that became a catchphrase for a while. This and this footprint. What I want to talk about tonight, what about mine and your spiritual footprints. We understand what social media influencers are. There are people 
who make an almost an obscene amount of money and all they do is just try to encourage people to be on this website or to buy this product. They, they just want to influence people's decisions. That's a job now. Does that shock you? That's always been a job. It's been a job since Pentecost. Christians are to have an influence on those that they are around. I want to, if this be the last night that we be together, this is kind of just take all the lessons that we've kind of worked on and try to condense them all down into this. And what it is, is what we do matters. We talked on uh, Sunday morning about, you know, issues of, of, of a local church, whether a local church is growing, whether a local church is, is knowledgeable. We, okay. we have an influence around the saints we are around. We talked Sunday night about relationships we have within the home, husbands, wives, fathers, children. We have an influence on our families. We have an influence in the homes that we are a part of. We have an influence on, on those outside. We talked Sunday night, I guess, no, maybe Monday night when the lessons running together. We talked about uh, the morality, how we are to live a moral life before others, be that dress or be that any form of morality. Others are influenced by us, or at least they should be. So I want to talk tonight about that so-called spiritual footprint. Are we conscious of our impact? Daily actions, daily choices. Some choices we make more significant than others, more consequential than others. But we're making choices every day, and people see those choices. They're looking whether we know it or not. I, I am an Auburn fan, and I, but whether or not you are, you know the name Charles Barkley. You'll remember back, uh, at least if you're my age or so, back in, I'm guessing maybe the early to mid-90s, he was still playing. And he had this commercial series. I don't know what he was selling. I don't know what the commercial was about, but it, was, it may have just been a public service announcement. It might not even have been a commercial at all. But here was the, here, here, here's how it played out. It was, it was black and white. And it, you could tell it was dark, it was night, and he's walking down this, walking down the street, and he's kind of window shopping. You know, he's walking down the street, and he's looking in these windows, and, and while he's doing that, there's this, he's just speaking, not as he walked, but just over the, over the screen. And what he was saying was, I am not a role model. And he took a lot of heat for that. Now, if, what he was trying, and, and what that, that, that whole conversation was, that's just pulling that one thing out. That's what people will remember about the commercials when he said, I'm not a role model. But the whole concept was, uh, he, parents, I'm not the role model for your children. You are. I'm not the role model for your children. Their teachers are. And he made this, he was, I happen to be born a little taller than normal, a little faster than normal. I have, it a, I have a little bit different skill level than others. Your child's not going to be me. I'm not their role model. You are. Well, he took some heat for that, but what he said was probably right. But I'm going to just, I'll defend him in that way, but I will say, but weak men, you can't ever say that. You and I, as Christians, can never say we are not a model. We are. What is, I can't wait to see what God's plan is for me. You don't have to wait. He's already told us. 
take on the image of my son. That's what we have to image every day. That's, what, that's the example, that's the model that we are to present every day. Are you with me in Matthew chapter 5? I know you're familiar with this text, but you know, more is expected of us. Look in verse 13. You are salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Do you recognize, you don't have to be an English major to understand that's talking present tense. He does not say, I want you to shoot for that. He doesn't say, I want you to aim for that. He doesn't say, that's what I want you to end up being. No, he says, that's what you are. This is preparatory preaching for the kingdom. If you're going to be in my kingdom, this is what you are. You are salt. Because if you're not salt, you're part of the problem. You're part of the rotten world that needs preserving. You are salt. Or you're part of the problem. You are light. Or you're part of the problem. You're light or dark. You are light. And if we are not, then we're part of the darkness. Remember when John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he began in Matthew chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about those type people who are going to be in that kingdom. They are salt and they are light. We have an impact. We are expected to have an impact, young ones, at school, uh, moms and dads at work, uh, wherever we live, our neighborhoods. We all have our, our circles that we'll talk about in a moment. We are watched. We are scrutinized. There are sharp eyes on us. And our example is not something that we can keep to ourselves. That's why we, we, don't, we didn't see Ryan last night be baptized and then today shipped off to a monastery on the top of a mountain where he's... Yeah, that, that removes a lot of outside influences, but it also removes our influence. We're not able to leaven anything. We're not able to improve through the salt and through the light. So let's talk tonight about our influence. And the first thing I want to start with the idea, let's make sure that we don't underestimate it. It's easy for you and I to underestimate this. We're from a, we're from a, a state that in the country isn't exactly exalted. We're from a, a region that kind of gets looked down and laughed at. And we think we're just, who are we in the big picture? Heard a man say one time that the problem with influence is that by the time we realize its impact, it may be too late. Well, let's make sure that's not our problem. Let's understand the influence that we can have. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. Paul did not underestimate... His influence. He was well aware of it. Look in verse 9. These things that which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do them. The things you have heard and seen in me. He understood very, very well that people were watching him. 
I know you've seen me. He understood very well that people were listening to him, the things you have heard. The things you've seen in me, the things you've heard in me, he understood and was aware that both his teaching and that his life were being watched. People are watching us too. Wherever you live, if you, unless you moved into your house yesterday, if you've been in your neighborhood at, for, for any significant amount of time, the people in your general area, they ought to know where you worship at. If they don't, I, I, I politely ask the question, what's the problem? People that are around, that, that, that know something about you, that you have a, some, at least some form of relationship with, they don't know. People that you work with will know. People in your family that may not be Christians, may not be New Testament Christians, they will know. And they know the stance that you take on moral issues. They know the stance that you take on acceptable worship, acceptable... Uh, they know, and they're just watching, even if it be out of the corner of their eye. They have their eye on you, and they're looking. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't underestimate your influence. Here's an example of where a faithful person drew others to Christ. We have examples of that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, you wives be in subjection, verse 1, to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without a word be won by the behavior of the wife. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste behavior and reverence. Here's an example of, of influence leading someone. I heard someone say to another person, I, got to, I, got to, I was there when it was said, he said, I want, it, I want what you have. He was talking to another person that I was with. I, I want what you have. He didn't really even know what she had. But he knew that there was something. There was something different. He had recognized it. He, he saw it. I want what you have is, what, is the statement that he made. Faithful people have influenced obedience. It also works on the opposite. Don't underestimate your influence. Don't underestimate the influence of those around you. Solomon's wives would be the opposite of the. Here's 1 Peter chapter 3. This incredibly pious woman, this incredible reverent woman, this incredible faithful woman who was seen and recognized daily basis and it had an impact. With Solomon, it was the opposite. Incredibly immoral woman incredibly fleshly women, women who pulled him away to their own false gods. Positive and negative, but you can't underestimate it. You can't overlook it. I won't have us turn to 2 Timothy 2. I'll just remind us of what we, we talked about this a couple nights ago. I'm not exactly sure why. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is when Paul said, uh, I taught you, you taught others, and those faithful men will go out and teach others. We talked about four generations of, of teaching in one verse. Paul, Timothy, the ones Timothy taught, and the ones they would go out and taught. Eventually, it becomes our turn. Don't underestimate your influence. Eventually, it's our time to step up. How many of us have been impacted? But how many, you, you don't underestimate influence because it's happened in your life. 
it would have initially started with family. That's the initial wave of influence on all of us. From there, it probably transitioned into school. Did you have teachers that influenced you? You had family that influenced you? Have you had teachers that influenced you? Have you had coaches or band directors or art teachers? Or At some point along the way, we had friends that influenced us. At some point along the way, we had mentors that influenced us. We've all been influenced. It's time that we do the same. Think of all the ones who influenced us. Now, one day, wouldn't it be nice if, if we are the one who someone can look back on and say, I'm glad they were in my life. They influenced me, and they influenced me for good. Why can't that be me? Why can't that be you? If we're salt and light, it will be. Does it make us uncomfortable to think that as parents, we are the one that is creating long-term memories. Does that, does, does that scare us a little bit? Does it make us uncomfortable to think that we become the planter of spiritual seed? We become the sower of Matthew 13. Does that make us uncomfortable? Does it make us uncomfortable that there will be times when people come to us and ask for advice? And all of a sudden, we are the counselor that is shaping someone's views, shaping someone's actions. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because we're not talking hypothetic. That's not arrogance. That's reality. Those are what we are to be. We never know when they're looking. We never know how the influence is happening. I'll just, let me take one, one quick story. When, um, when our daughter was getting married, she and, her, she and what became her husband, they, wanted it, they, they had a really quick idea of we, we want it to be small. We don't want to be expensive. We, and so they, they did most of the work themselves. And our daughter, I wouldn't tell this if she was here, our daughter, um, she decided she was going to make her own cake. I'm going to make my own wedding cake. And one of the ladies at church took her size. You know, you might be spreading yourself a little bit too thin. You know, you may not have time to do all this. She, she came home that night, madder than maybe I've ever seen her. Do you know what she said to me? She said, I wasn't going to be able to do it. The last thing I saw was the back of her head walking down the hallway saying, I'll show her. And I thought to myself, oh, no, she's me. She didn't get that from Carla. I'm the stubborn one. She got that from me. It is a humbling thing when you see your weaknesses in your children. Humbling thing. But don't underestimate, because there are people watching. And there are people without, we might not even recognize, but they may be imitating. Don't underestimate our influence. Don't, estimate the, don't underestimate the salt or the light that we can be. Now, the strange thing is we might not always see it at work. We might not actually even be aware. I didn't know my stubbornness was wearing off on her, but obviously it did. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We might not always see that it's having any impact at all. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Read with me in verse 5. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But servants, ministers, by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So there is not he that plants anything, neither is he that waters, but God that gives the increase. I'm going to pull that just a little bit out of its context for just a moment. It's, here's Paul saying, I did this part. Apollos did this part. Apollos planted, I, I planted, Apollos watered. And so what that means, likely, Paul did his part. And then he left, remember? Missionary journeys took him from place to place. And then another man came in, building and, and continuing on that foundation that was laid. And it could very well may be that Apollos saw some growth in people that Paul never got to see. Now you flip that thing over. If we've got the timeline right, 1 Corinthians came after Paul's visit there. He, he visits there, and then he writes the letter afterward. That is opposite of how the Roman letter was, was given. The Roman letter was before that imprisonment of Acts chapter 28. When Paul wrote the Roman letter, he had not been there. When he showed up, Remember when they were taking him? There were Christians who met him outside of town and walked in with him. There were already Christians in Rome. And then he gets there and he does three years of water. He didn't plant. He watered. And the point is, it is a rare thing for maybe us to see our efforts all the way through from conversion, say, to maturity. We might not get to see all that. But we have a role in it. We have an influence in it. The goal is to make this gradual positive influence. It's not about prideful gratification. It's not the outcome that drives us. It's just this, this, this small role that we might have. We might not even recognize the influence that we have where we work. You might not even be fully cognizant of, of the influence that you have in your family among non-believers. You might not recognize it. It doesn't mean it's not there. You might not see it. It might not be acknowledged in your presence. But you don't know that it's not there. You might not see it. But don't underestimate it. Now here's the catch. Don't underestimate it because you only get so long for it. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There is a, a, there is a shelf life to this. I'm not trying to be negative, not trying to be discouraging, but health will eventually go. We're going to die young, or the Lord's coming back, or we're going to die old. Health will go away opportunities that we have now will go away. And so we have to take advantage of the windows that we have, of the time that we have, of the opportunities that we have. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 16. There is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which is now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. How does the, how does the wise man die? just like the fool does. The wise and the fool will be forgotten. Who do you think was the wisest person 
to ever walk in Shelby County? You don't know. You know who the most foolish person was? Don't, don't say, you know, my brother-in-law. Do you know who the most foolish person was? No, you don't know that person either. Come and they go. Wise people come, foolish people come, and they go. And then that last phrase, you know how the wise die? Same way the fool dies. You know what that means? Here's how the wise die, and here's how the fool dies. There's a last breath. Now, a lot of circumstances might bring about that last breath. That is the point. The wise and the foolish end up the same. No distinction. Look in chapter 9. The wise forgotten and the foolish forgotten. Oh yeah, but that's... But, but, that's talking about insignificant people, right? That's talking about people who really didn't do anything. No, it's not. Look in verse 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 14. There was a little city with a few people in it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. You know what that means in verse 14? There's a city about to go down. It's bad news for the little town. Here's this small town not populated very well, and it is just simply surrounded. A siege has begun, and they're about to get smashed. But not quite. Look in verse 15. There was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. And yet nobody remembered the poor wise man. Actually, here's, here's somebody in that small town that for a while was a hero. And probably the ones who lived during his days, they remembered him and they may have told their children about him. But in time, people forgot all about the event. Now this is a parable, of course. But the point is, no matter the great thing we might do, let enough years on the calendar fly. Let enough decades go by, and people will forget. Time is undefeated. And one day, I'm not trying to be masochistic here, but one day we will be forgotten. The general rule is, 50 years after we're dead, there's nobody left who knew that we were alive. It's not exactly a, it's not exactly a truism. Because, you know, you may have gotten married very early, had children very early. Those children had children very early, and you get your grandparent quickly. Um, it might be that you know, Carla knew her great-great-grandmother because she lived to be like 106. So, yeah, there's some outliers. But the general rule is, 50 years after we're gone, there's nobody left who knew we were around. There's a shelf life for our influence. Our words are not going to be chiseled in stone like Thomas Jefferson's and James Madison's or Abraham Lincoln's. That's not going to happen for us. The Lord doesn't come back. Me and you will be forgotten in time, just like this Savior of the city. We affect our kids in an indescribable way. The influence on grandkids is real. 
but not nearly as strong. They don't live with you. So we've got this incredible influence on our kids. We have a, on the grandkids influence, but less. And just every generation, it's less and less and less. When I was born, I had, well, I mean, through my teenage years, I had all four of my grandparents that lived. I had all four of them. So that meant I had a potential of eight great-grandparents. I don't know any of them. I have, not a, I have no memories of any of those eight. Some of them were dead before I was born. Some of them died when I was young and don't have valid memories of myself. I remember one generation back, and that's it. And this room's probably full of a lot of people. Again, there are some outliers, but there's a lot of people that would say the same thing. What's the point? We have small windows. Don't blow it. Don't waste it. Our influence can live on for a little while after our death. So take advantage of that moment. We influence just these small circles at a time. Not all of us have the same number of, of people within that circle, but we all have people that we are around. Impressions can be made. So what are some dangers of this? We're not going to underestimate it because we're salt and we're light. We might not see it, but that's not going to prevent our actions. And we're going to take advantage of those windows that we have. What are some things that could get in the way of that? Turn to Romans chapter 2. Inconsistency is a problem. Inconsistency is a beast. It can destroy so much. Nothing turns people off quicker than hypocrisy. Now that's one of the interesting things. Even, even hypocrites don't like hypocrisy in somebody else. Nobody likes it. Here's an example of it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writing about the Gentile world. As I understand the, 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 the flow of the, of the letter, in Romans chapter 2, he basically begins talking about the issues of the Jewish nation. But they don't know it. They don't figure that out until verse 17. Behold, you are called a Jew. Up until then, they probably, at the first reading, they probably thought he was just continuing on to talk about the Gentile world. He wasn't. He was talking about them. And in verse 17, he pulls the, he pulls the curtain back. I'm talking to you. Behold, thou art called a Jew. What was the problem? You rest in the law. You make your boast of God. You know His will. You approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. You are confident that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. You are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes, which has the form of knowledge and of truth in the law. Here's what you, here's what you think of yourself. Here's what you see in yourself. And it says, it's all a charade. Pick back up in verse 21. You that teach another, do you never teach yourself? You that preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You that says a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhorrest idols, do you rob temples? You make your boast of the law, and through breaking the law, you dishonor God. See, 
You're bragging about the law while breaking it. And then in verse 24, what he says is, all that does is lead to blasphemy. You brag about it, you boast about it, and, but you don't keep it. And people know you don't keep it. They see the hypocrisy in your life, and all it does, it makes people turn around and, 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 and reject. It leads to blasphemy. We've got to set a consistent example of character, a consistent example of morals, a consistent example of, of service both to God and to others. We've got to be consistent in our kindness. We've got to be consistent in our morality. We've got to be consistent in our thankfulness, consistent in our hospitality, consistent in how we control our tongues, consistent in life. Because remember, people are watching. We might not know it. We might not recognize it. But we take on the image of Christ. We have to be consistent in that image. Compromising is another issue. Compromise with things that we know, things we are supposedly convicted about, but we, we, don't, we don't take the stand. It's easier to back up. It's easier to back down. It's easier to bite the tongue and just be quiet when it's time to speak. People will lose respect for our conviction. They'll lose respect for our, our sincerity, I guess we'll say. It discredits everything we've tried to do. Because when they, if, if we talk about moral and we talk about righteousness and we talk about the difference between right and wrong, and then we, we overlook our kids' misdeeds. If we talk about morality and right and wrong, and then the boss puts some pressure on us, and we bow to that. People are looking. People are acknowledging. People are seeing. People are scrutinizing. And what they'll think is, it's just like me. Talk's a nice game. Might know a little bit more Bible than the average Joe, but when it comes down to it, he's no different than us. The only way to ever defeat Satan is to never compromise with him. Because he just wants a little of you. A little of us isn't enough for God. A little of us, Satan's on fire about that. Loves it. That's all he wants is just a little. So we've got to make sure that consistency and compromising, we're aware of that. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see in where we began. Our character is public property. They may care very, very little for the things that we say, but they sure are having a sharp eye for what we do. So let's do right, and then let's let God take care of the fruit. Let God take care of the influence. Let God take care of the increase. But here's the interesting thing about if we fail at this. My granddad was, one of my granddads was a, I, I didn't know the word at the time, but today we would call him a hoarder. He just collected everything. We just nicknamed. He was just you know the junk man. He had a barn that he filled up. So he literally went out when I was a teenager. He he built another shed in his back. He built a building in the back of his house that was bigger than the house. You think I'm making that up? He built a barn, a shed bigger than the house was. And when he died, it took my mom and my aunt and my uncle. It took them months to go through all that stuff. Just 
stuff. But in all that, in all of his hoarding tendencies, you know what they never found? They never found a big box worth of shot light bulbs. Even a hoarder understands. There is no other use for that. A light bulb that doesn't work, a light bulb that has shot, one place for it, the garbage. Look back to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, what will it be salted? It is good for nothing but to be cast out. That ought to take our breath away. You are salt of the earth. You are light. And if you're not, what Jesus is saying is you can't be with me. It shows how contemptible it is to God for us to not be what we should. You are salt of the earth, and if you're not, there's really no place for it in the kitchen. If the salt doesn't do what it's supposed to do, there's no place for it in the cabinet. If the light doesn't do what it's supposed to do, there's no place for it on the shelf. And that ought to scare us. Are we what we are supposed to be? Are we the influence that we are supposed to be? Get your songbooks out. I guess we we'll just let the parting words be, take heed to ourself. As we talked about Sunday morning, examine ourselves. See whether or not we are in the faith. To those of us that are Christians, all of us can be better. This is not... us thinking that we are better than others. We can be better. We can improve. And I hope, we, I hope this has been something that would encourage us to do that, to just take a new look at ourselves. I can be better. So let's be better. For those of you that are not Christians, we saw last night what happens when the Word of God enters into a soft heart. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. And it's still as powerful as it ever was. There may be people here tonight, other, other people, who are not Christians, but you know who Jesus is. You believe with all your heart He is who He says He is. You believe that sin separated you from Him, and so you're willing to repent of those sins. You believe He is the King of a kingdom, and you want to serve Him in it. You believe, as we, what we witnessed last night, you believe because of the power and the promise of God that sins are washed away in the waters of baptism, you rise up in newness of life, you rise up cleansed and forgiven. You rise up a son of God. Don't wait. Do what you know to do when you know to do it. And so if you know you need to respond, then don't hang on to the pew. Let us help you while you stand and sing.